Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, please, to Matthew, the 16th chapter, where I'll take for our reading verses 13 to 17. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17, the well-known passage about Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. Hear now God's word. Now when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he saith unto them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And thus far the reading of God's word. The most important question that men can ask themselves this weekend is not how shall we use the Labor Day vacation that we have and not shall we paint the kitchen or do some yard work. The most important question people can ask themselves this Labor Day weekend, indeed the most important question they can ask themselves at any particular time in their lives, the most important, the most crucial, the turning point question of any person's existence is, who is this one, this Jesus of Nazareth? What do you make of Jesus? That's a good question, by the way, if you're witnessing to others. A good way to open a conversation about the claims of Jesus Christ and the need that people have for the gospel, the good news that he declares. Who is Jesus? What do we make of him? There are many available answers. Indeed, as I uh, was thinking about laying out some of them before you today, I was overwhelmed at uh, uh, the number of different and, and various uh, shades of difference between the answers about who is this Jesus? I suppose the most important question of all in trying to decide who Jesus is is who did Jesus think that he was? Who did Jesus portray himself as being? What did he make of his life and his ministry and his own identity? And then hearing from his own lips who he claims to be, the question becomes, do we believe that? Do we agree with this? How do we modify it? What will we make of this one, Jesus of Nazareth? Somebody might say, what a hopelessly narrow-minded, provincial, and Western perspective to say the most important question in any person's life is who is Jesus? In the first place, not all men have even heard about Jesus, we will be told. And those who have heard of Jesus will hear of him as just one more religious leader among many. In the eastern part of the world, in particular, there are many others who might be considered the person in need of an identity, to be identified by people. What do you make of Gautama Buddha? What do you make of Krishna? What do you make of others? How can we say that the most important question is what do you make of Jesus? 
and even here in the Western world where there is a historical tradition that goes back to Jesus of Nazareth where his name has been more uh, popularly used, not always used in the best way, often abused, but nevertheless where his name is well known. How can you possibly say the most important question is what do you make of him? He lived so many years ago, 2,000 years ago now. How can he be that important? And even if you're in the Christian church, we will be told, how can you make this such an important question? What's crucial is not what we make of Jesus, but whether we are like Jesus. This is what modern theologians try to tell us. They tell us that these terrible, terribly difficult theological, metaphysical questions about Christ and his divine claims and so forth cannot possibly be answered today. We have no way of knowing. There is so much standing between us and the culture of Jesus' day, so much standing between us and the writers of the New Testament, so much standing between the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself. Who knows how many variations, how many things have been inserted, how many changes and qualifications have to be made. We don't know what to make of Jesus, but since we are Westerners, since we are in the Christian tradition, these modern liberal theologians tell us the important thing is that that ideal that Jesus stood for be the ideal for our life, our lifestyle, that we live as Jesus lived. Well, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced in the slightest that I should live like Jesus if he isn't who he said he was. And if he isn't who he said he was, then I think, as a matter of fact, we ought to do everything we can to distance ourselves from a person who talks as Jesus talked. I ask you to realistically consider this morning what you would do if instead of the Night Stalker being caught yesterday and that dominating the news, we had somebody who was put before us on the news because he had, um, let's say, climbed to one of the tallest buildings in downtown Los Angeles and was proclaiming to everyone that he was God Almighty and that the destinies of all men depended upon what they made of him and his claims. What would you make of a person who said that he had a life before this life with God, indeed that he was God before he entered into this life, and that he's just taken on that particular human body that he has for a time to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. What would you make of a man who claimed these sorts of things? Would you say, well, that's the sort of man we want to be like. We'd like to be like such a lunatic who goes about making claims, grandiose, megalomaniacal claims for himself like that. And you know, and even if we thought he had done some good things, even if we were impressed with, as the liberals often are, the psychological depth of this man's teaching or the wonderful loving illustration of his life, I doubt that we would say he is a model for our children when he goes about saying such things about himself. No, we shouldn't imitate the life of Jesus if we are not willing to confess the name of Jesus for what he claimed to be. What do you make of Jesus? That's the question this morning. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus shows that he too is concerned with this question of his identity. He was concerned with what men made of him, how they responded to him. Indeed, this passage is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. If you study the Gospels, you will see Jesus making 
important claims for the coming of the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel and release to the outcast, to the Gentiles. He makes important claims about himself. But it's at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus, hearing from his own disciples the proper confession of his name, now begins to tell them he must go to Jerusalem and there to be rejected of men, to be condemned and die and rise again. Yes, this is a crucial turning point. Look at verse 21 following our reading for this morning. From that time began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised up. In verse 18, following Peter's confession, Jesus says that upon this rock he will now build his church. You see what a crucial turning point this becomes now at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus makes the turning point of his ministry. Jesus makes the crux here. Who am I? Actually, he begins this way. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? He asks for um, a Gallup poll, as it were. Jesus says to his followers, what have you been hearing about me? What are men saying out there? How are they responding? How do they identify me? And some say, well, they think you're Elijah, come back from the dead. After all, that had been prophesied. Some think that it's John the Baptist, who of course was supposed to be Elijah, coming in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist, maybe, come back from the dead. Maybe you're Elijah, or maybe Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I want you to stop and think about it. How would you like that if you went out? I mean, just think of this preacher. What if I were to send out a public opinion poll and say, all right, all of you who have read or have heard of Dr. Greg Bonson, please indicate who do you think this man is? You know, I would be overwhelmed if somebody said, we think he's Elijah. That's incredible. Or Jeremiah or one of the... John the Baptist? Really? You know, the amazing thing is that Jesus is not satisfied with that. To say that he is one of the prophets is to damn him with faint praise. It's to say of him something that would be good in any other context, but here it is insufficient, totally inadequate. And so Jesus says, all right, who then do you say that I am? And um, please forget all the other terrible things you know about Peter this morning, okay? Forget the impetuousness of the fisherman. Forget his threefold denial of the Lord on the night of his trial. Forget the many things that would make us identify with Peter for being the clumsy and inconsistent follower of Christ that he was. And remember here this glorious passage where Peter now steps forward as the spokesman for the apostles. And it doesn't make any difference what the world says. Peter says, we know that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And now Jesus is satisfied because he says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't show that to you. This doesn't come from your own human reasoning. This doesn't come from your own ability and your own insight, Peter. No, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. Yes, Peter, you're right. God has enabled and God has warranted what you have said. And what did Peter say? 
Well, I want you to look at the three things, actually, that we see in this passage, and then I'm going to uh, widen our scope in a few moments to look at more of the biblical testimony about Jesus. Jesus opens this question about his identity in a very interesting way. He says, who do men say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man. That's a title we need to focus on for a little while here. And then we'll see in Peter's confession, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, and what implications that has. And then also, the Son of the living God, Son of Man, the Messiah, and Son of God. These three titles will occupy our thoughts here at the beginning of our study this morning. Why does Jesus ask the question in this way, Who do men say the Son of Man is? If you read the Gospels, if you're a student of the Bible, a detailed student of the Bible, you'll know the answer to this. You'll know that that is the most common way in which Jesus identified himself to men. Of all the titles that Jesus uses for himself in the Gospels, this occurs more often than any other. And the amazing thing is not only is it his favorite title, it is a title that is unique to Jesus. You don't find the development of a Son of Man theology in Jewish um, uh, thinking and study of this time. You don't find it in the early church. You look in the Gospels, the later portions of the New Testament, and you do not find the Son of Man referred to in these terms. It is uniquely Jesus' way of speaking of himself. It is his favorite self-designation. What does it mean that he is the Son of Man? To understand what Jesus was referring to, turn to Daniel, the seventh chapter, verse 13 where in the Old Testament the reference to the Son of Man is made and it's not a reference to the humanity or to the humility of this particular figure but is rather a glorious designation for one who is in fact divine and to have a kingdom that knows no end. Daniel 7.13 Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold there came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of man. And he came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is asking about himself in terms of Daniel's prophecy. Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. In fact, you'll notice in Mark, the second chapter, two important uses of that title. Jesus heals a man and then forgives his sins. And his critics all about say, who do you think you are? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus responds, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I do the following. You see, he identifies the Son of Man with a divine figure having divine prerogative and authority. Later in that same chapter, in the 28th verse, after Jesus has been criticized for working on the Sabbath, violating the Sabbath, he speaks of himself as the Son of Man, saying that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Who could be Lord of the Sabbath but Jehovah God Almighty? And he says he is, as the Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath. In John, the third chapter, verses 13 and 14, you notice that Jesus thinks of the Son of Man as one who existed previous to his life, a figure who has eternal existence, a pre-existence. 
John 3, the 13th verse. And no one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. The Son of Man is a heavenly figure. He came from heaven into this world. He came with the authority to forgive sins, to be Lord over the Sabbath. This is the title Jesus uses of himself most consistently, most uniquely in the Gospels. In itself, that tells us what Jesus thought of his own identity. He is the one in Daniel's prophecy who comes on the clouds of heaven, a divine figure, who comes to the Ancient of Days, Jehovah God Almighty, and receives from him an everlasting kingdom that all the world should worship and serve him. And so Jesus says, what can say about the Son of Man? Jesus begs the question. He doesn't even say, do men say that I am the Son of Man? He rather says, who do men say the Son of Man is? I am the Son of Man, but what are they saying about me? We've already heard the false answers. Flattering to be sure, but false, inadequate answers. Peter's answer is, is you are the Christ, the Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus will come to be called Jesus Christ. But you have to understand that that's later in the development of Christian thinking. The earlier designation for Jesus will be Jesus the Christ. Because Christ is not a name, Christ is a title. It is a function. It is a position. Jesus is his given name, Jesus of Nazareth. That individual, Jesus, is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the Anointed One. And this is what Peter is confessing. He says, we know that you are the Christ. This in itself tells us volumes about the character and the nature of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God had prophesied that he would come. He himself would come and save his people. Also in the Old Testament, we read that God will come in the person of the Messiah, the Anointed One. That God would save His people, but He would come as a Messiah, an anointed leader. And I want you to look at some of the Old Testament expectations about this Messiah. In Psalm 110, verse 1, we read one of the best-known verses from the Psalter in the New Testament. Jehovah saith unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Look at Malachi 3, verse 1. <clears throat> the last prophecy of the Old Testament, Malachi, the third chapter. Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, whom ye desire, behold, he cometh, saith Jehovah of hosts. Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verse 6, where the prophet tells us that one is coming who can be described in these terms. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forever. In Micah, the fifth chapter, verse 2, another passage you hear at Christmas season, 
often we have the prophecy of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall one come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, one more Old Testament indication of the identity of the Messiah. The voice of one that cries, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah, make level in the desert a highway for our God. What did the Old Testament godly Jews, the Bible-believing Jews of the Old Testament, know about this coming Savior? They knew that God would come to save. That it's one that Jehovah calls Lord. They would prepare the way for Jehovah in the desert, in the highway in the desert for their God. That the messenger of the covenant would be, in fact, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Now, what I find interesting is that if you read the New Testament, each of the passages I've read for you now out of the Old Testament is quoted, and in each case is quoted about Jesus of Nazareth. It's about Jesus that we are to make in the desert a highway for our God, to prepare the way for Jehovah, the Lord who is coming. It is Jesus to whom Jehovah says, Sit thou at my right hand until I make the enemies the footstool of your feet. It is Jesus who is born of Bethlehem, whose goings forth are from everlasting. He is the eternal one. He is God, the mighty God. He is Jehovah. And so we know that the Jewish expectation, to the extent that it was built upon Old Testament theology, the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would be God. And so when Jesus, in John the fourth chapter, meets the woman at the well, and she says to him at one point, well, I know that Messiah, who is called the Christ, is coming. Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. What a bold claim. The one who has goings forth from everlasting? Jehovah, the one exalted over all, the mighty God? Jesus says, that's me. And so Simon Peter here follows suit. He says, we know that you are the Christ, the Messiah. Indeed, his very death was for that political reason that he claimed to be the Messiah. Look at John the excuse me, Mark the 14th chapter verse 62. Mark 14 we'll look at verses 61 and 62. It's at Jesus trial before the Sanhedrin. And he is going to be asked that very question. He held his peace and again the high priest asked him, and saith unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Son of God in this messianic sense? Do you really claim to be this exalted figure, this messianic expectation from the Old Testament? Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, with resplendent simplicity, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel's prophecy. Now it all comes together. Of course I am the Messiah. 
and I will come on the clouds of heaven, and you will see me given a kingdom, and I will rule over you. And the response of the Sanhedrin, do they understand their theology? They certainly do. They don't have hearts of faith, but they know the meaning of this. And so they rent their clothes and say, what further need we have witnesses? We've heard the blasphemy. How can he, being a man, claim to be the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? How can he claim to be God? And so they take him to Pilate. And when they take him to Pilate, they don't accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse him of claiming to be the Messiah. Because if he's the Messiah, that means he's the king. And so you know Pilate's interrogation. Pilate says, art thou then a king? And Jesus says, you have said it. I am the Messiah. I am the king, the king of the Jews. And so Pilate has that inscription put over the cross. The king of the Jews. The Sanhedrin, of course, is beside themselves. No, say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I have written. The Old Testament promised a divine Messiah, and everything in the New Testament points to Jesus' declaration and those about him that he was indeed that Messiah. And so Scripture speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus 2.13 and in 2 Peter 1.1, both these passages, Paul and Peter, called the Savior our God. It's not a God-sent Savior. It is God who is our Savior. From Matthew's passage, we've seen Jesus speak of himself as the Son of Man. We've seen Peter identify him as the Christ, the Messiah. We also see Peter calling him the Son of God. That title, Son of God, applies to Jesus in a completely unique way. In John 1, verse 14... John tells us that he and the others who were with Jesus have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten. You know, that becomes somewhat evangelical linguo. We kind of hear that so often that we stop to think about the significance of it. What is an only begotten? It means an only son, a one and only one of its kind. In fact, I, I love the, the Greek at that point because it says it so nicely. I'll take you into the kitchen here for a minute to show you. Monogenes. You know what mono means because there used to be menorial uh, uh, record players, that sort of thing. One track. One. Mono. As in monologue. Genes. Generated. Or genus. One in this genus. One of its kind the only begotten, the unique Son of God. He's not Son of God as you or I might be a Son of God. He is the Son of God in the monogenes sense, the one and only sense, a sense that indicated that he was equal with God himself. We see, especially in John's Gospel, in John the 5th chapter and in John the 10th chapter, that when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, his opponents say, what, you make yourself out to be equal with God? And, of course, he did. Because he is not just the Son of God, in our English way of putting it. We might put it this way. He is God, the Son. He is the triune Son of God. He is not like us, entering into a relationship of sonship with God by grace, but rather by nature. He is, in his very being, God, the Son. 
the amazing thing is that throughout Scripture, anybody who studies comparative religion knows that the unique feature of Jewish religion is its monotheism. There is only one God. What is the central profession of faith of all Jews? The Shema of Israel. Hear, O, Lord, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we find Jesus claiming to be that God. We find Jewish people claiming that he is that God. And yet going on to say there is only one God. And so what a wealth of testimony we find here in Matthew the 16th chapter. The Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of God. There can be no question as to who he is, who he claimed to be. I've already told you that Jesus claimed that men's destinies depended on their reaction to him. He said, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells us that if we will not take up our cross and be willing to suffer for him, that he will not have any part of us, and that will be for our eternal detriment. He claimed to have authority greater than Abraham before Abraham was I am, he said. He claimed to be greater than the temple. He said, one greater than the temple is here. He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. What would this mean in Jewish ears? Greater than Abraham, our father? Greater than the temple, our glory? Greater than the Sabbath, our leading religious institution? And he did things which were appropriate only for God. He forgave sins. What would you make of a person if they came into our church this morning, came up to you and said, I forgive your sins. You'd say, who are you to forgive sins? Exactly what Jesus' opponents said of him, but he did so. Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan to fall down and worship Satan, said, it stands written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. And yet throughout the Gospels, we see people falling down and worshiping Jesus and not a word of rebuke, not a word of hesitation to receive that. Indeed, right before the Great Commission, what we read is they all fell down and worshipped him. And at that point, instead of saying, no, worship only God, Jesus said, go make disciples for me out of all of the nations and baptize them into the singular name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He put himself on a par with God the Father and received their worship and forgave their sins. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say he is? Well, I suggest that the alternatives are really slim. C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said, this man was either a lunatic on the order of somebody who claims to be a poached egg. If you know his claims historically, he's either a lunatic or a con man, a liar somebody who sees an easy way to get followers and to make a name for himself, make money, whatever it may be. He's either a lunatic or a liar. Or the most incredible thing of all, he is who he said he is. He's God. Jesus said that before he appeared in history as a man, he already existed. He existed eternally. He said that he was the creator of the world. He said that he left his throne of glory and came into this world. 
And the Bible tells us that he came into this world as the incarnate Son of God. That is to say, God in flesh, incarnos. God the incarnate one. So shall she give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall give birth to a son and we shall call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. God with us. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Who being in the form of God, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. He took on himself the likeness of men. He was in the form of God. He was God himself who came into this world and took on human flesh. And so John says in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Paul will say, admittedly, great is the mystery of godliness, who was manifested in the flesh. In Colossians 2.9, one of the greatest testimonies to the incarnation, Paul says, in him dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. In him, all that God is dwells in bodily form. He is the incarnate Son of God. Above all, the most sacred name of God found in the Bible is applied to Jesus. He is Jehovah. Jesus claimed that when in John the 8th chapter he said, before Abraham was, I am. You know, when you read that in English, your tendency is to correct his grammar, right? You mean before Abraham was, you were. No, he says before Abraham was, I am. You see, and the Jews take up rocks to stone him because you don't claim to be the I am. No one can claim to be the I am. You see, in Old Testament, when Moses asks for the special, sacred name of God, God deigns in grace to reveal it. He says, I am Yahweh. Now, we don't even know that that's the way it was pronounced. It's transliterated Jehovah because the Jews would not speak the most sacred name of God. The name means, I am that I am. The Hebrew simply is, I am that I am. The great I am has spoken. And Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. If you look at um, Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verses 13 and 14, I want to take just one illustration of what is a common feature of biblical theology. Isaiah 8, verses 13 and 14. The prophet says, Jehovah of hosts, him shall ye sanctify. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, and for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Jehovah shall be the stumbling stone, the rock of offense to Israel. And now turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 8. 1 Peter 2, the 8th verse, where we find the Apostle Peter writing these words. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Who is Peter speaking of, though? He's speaking of Jesus Christ. And he says, this Jesus Christ is the stone of stumbling of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke. Remember that little correlation, by the way, so when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, 
you can show them that you are a Jehovah's Witness and they aren't. Because what the New Testament says is that these passages, such as the one we just looked at from Isaiah, these passages that speak of Jehovah are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And there are many more like them that I could give you after the service this morning if you're interested. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that he is? With all the testimony before you, and there's far more than I've given you in this one exhortation, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1.8 says, about the Son, he said, your throne, O God, is forever. In Romans 9.5, Paul said, Christ is over all, God, blessed forever. In 1 John 5.20, the apostle said, his Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. In Hebrews 1.3, we read, His Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact impress of His substance. The woman at the well went back to her Samaritan village and she said, Come see a man who told me everything about myself. A man who was once blind said, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. The centurion standing at the cross could look at Jesus, the form of one dying for us upon that cross, and said, truly, this was a son of God. Peter called him the Lord over all. John called him the Lord of lords. Paul and James both called him the Lord of glory. Thomas fell down and called him my Lord and my God. The most crucial question in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ is the most crucial question in your life as well, in the life of every man. Can you believe that? That the transcendent Creator God, Jehovah Eternal and Almighty, has come and taken on human flesh and in this individual, this Jesus of Nazareth, we find the one that we are to worship and the only one who can forgive our sins. Who do men say that I am? Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. This morning, Father, we pray that you would increase our faith, increase our boldness, increase our insight and understanding that we might see the true uniqueness, if not also the offensiveness, of our Christian profession. That we may not look upon your beloved Son, your one and only Son, our Savior, as anything less than God Almighty, the Eternal One. Father, we know that the temptation the influence is all about us to bring him down from that exalted and high position and identity to make him but one more man among men, perhaps the best of men, but only a man, only a good teacher, only a moral example. Lord, forgive us for ever thinking in those terms. Forgive us for ever watering down our testimony to that level. Encourage and strengthen us to make it clear to the world 
that as silly as it may sound, as foolish as it may be taken, we can only follow him in the way that he bid us to follow him, as God Almighty. How we thank you that nothing less than God was good enough to come and be our Savior. We thank you that you loved us to that extent in our Lord Jesus Christ. How we do love you from the bottom of our hearts. That though you had all glory for all eternity, all power and authority in heaven and on earth, yet you were willing to leave that exalted position and to take on such a wretched form as our sinful flesh. And to be born not as a wealthy, powerful individual, but as a servant of men, and to die not in grandeur, but a criminal's death. The contrast is so great. And that very contrast shows us the depth of your love. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for being our God. We pray in your blessed name. Amen.